0: My mission is simple. To make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Cramer. One of my friends, I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you, so call me at one 800 743 cbc or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Today, the bulls got mauled. They are in full retreat. With the Dow plunging 396 points, S&P plumbing 1.66%, and the NASDAQ nosediving 3.03%. And that's left us with a lot of questions. We're all struggling to figure out when does this route end? When do the buyers come in? When do the sellers finish? (laughs) Frankly, we don't know. And that uncertainty is what allows this roving bear market to keep tearing us to pieces. Today, it was the software, the web, the cloud, the telecommunications, social media. They all let us lower. It's as though money managers are unwinding a gigantic position in these groups, many of which, and I think this is really crucial for you to know, many of which are still up a great deal for the year. And they have plenty of reasons to head from the hills because because people do not want to give up those gains. Let's take them down. And look, some of them are going to be familiar to you. Some of them are not if you just tune in for the first time. But, like, for instance, this is one. It's a continual theme for me. Uh, There's the Apple article in the Wall Street Journal. Apple suppliers suffer with uncertainty around iPhone demand. They're saying all of Apple's products are slowing, not just the cheaper ones. To me, these stories of slowing iPhone demand have become pretty repetitive, but nobody else seems to care. Each time they're treated as totally revelatory, pull a surprise winning even. The only thing we haven't seen yet are the downgrades. We've only had a couple. There could be many more. Now, I've told you over and over again, this market can't stabilize until Apple stabilizes. And we have the the chartists. They are saying it's all over but the crying. It doesn't help that Vice President Pence keeps throwing down the gauntlet against the Chinese, as the People's Republic is Apple's most important growth market. My view, Apple's a long-term hold, with its huge installed base giving the company's service revenue stream a lot of room to grow, which is why you own it, don't trade it. However, I can't blame any big accounts for dumping it. And at least short-term, I wouldn't expect the stock to bottom until some of the analysts start downgrading it, or many of them downgrading it, because the stock is still up almost 10% for the year. And the collective tell, it's not really been thrown yet, as painful as it has been for people who have watched it round-trip. Second, dare I mention it, Facebook. Facebook is just an unmitigated disaster when it comes to management. I think this, I actually think the stock would trade higher, If CEO Sheryl Sandberg left, said that this morning on Squawk, which is amazing, given that there was a time not that long ago when the stock would have been down 10 bucks on the news of her departure. Mark Zuckerberg, the CEO, is now making Elon Musk look like the Dalai Lama. The scathing articles about Facebook really remind me of the Nixon White House in the final days during the Watergate investigation with a real every man or woman for herself vibe. I've been calling for some sort of elder statesman to come in like this. Remember, I've been doing that for months, too, right? Actually, for a year. Uh, Like when Eric Schmidt took the reins at Google in 2001, giving the founders some adult supervision, putting the company on better footing. That's what Facebook desperately needs right now. Someone experienced to take over a CEO, you know, as chairman, maybe protect Mark Zuckerberg from himself. Of course, the stock is toxic as long as this issue goes on. Uh, the real problem being we don't know what this is in this issue. What is it? I wish I could recommend Facebook here, but I just can't find a reason to jump in front of a speeding freight train. I think the stock is cheap. I think business is actually pretty good, but with Zuckerberg declaring war on the lawmakers, on the investors, and even on his user base, again, very Nixonian, by the way, that's kind of beside the point. Facebook management. Yeah, it's true. Third, the software stocks are in free fall, and the move is based on, well, nothing other than, perhaps, a sense that the global economy is slowing and slowing rapidly. Plus, there's a widespread revulsion toward expensive stocks, and these stocks are far from cheap. This moment reminds me of the winter of 2016, where Salesforce.com, speak of the devil, plunged from 81 to 54 on pretty much nothing. Just like today, when it plunged from 132 to 121 on nothing. How does it end? These brutal declines in tech typically end when the longs are finished selling and the valuations can be sustained. We're not there yet. The incredible thing is there's no concrete evidence whatsoever that anything is really wrong. Nobody's seen a real slowdown on the web. If anything, the numbers have been quite strong. But try telling that to the sellers who fear that this could be like the winter of 2016, or worse, because the selling is even more indiscriminate. Try telling it to someone who's up 225% on Twilio. You know, we love that. Or look, or, or, or 25% on Adobe. They went out. They went out before the gains get taken away. Fourth, for the first time since the financial crisis, dip buying has failed. That's right. Ever since the generational bottom in March of 2009, it's paid to buy the high flyers into any momentary weakness. That's been the most reliable way to make money. No more. Now buying the dips seems injudicious, if not disastrous. Just think about the people who bought the myriad dips in NVIDIA fantastic semiconductor stock as it fell from 292 to 144 or micron from 64 to 36 or Western Digital from 106 to 45 or an Semi from 125 to 81. The Nasdaq is littered with these breakdowns. I could have gone on and on, people. The presumption is that 2019 will be a down year. How can you rebut it? I have no real comeback to the theory that dip buying is dead because we've had no clarity on 2019 and don't expect uh, mergers to, to save you because China's vetoing the mergers involving the semis. Fifth, it's hard to make a trade deal with a country when elements in your government keep pushing for what sounds like a lot like regime change. And that's what Vice President Pence said, uh, laid out this weekend, a direct challenge to China's geopolitical aspirations. I was shocked the market opened up. I read every inch of that thing. I read the speech on the White House uh, uh, .gov, and I said, oh, my God, we're going to get crushed today. If this administration views trade with the People's Republic as simply providing fuel for their attempts to become a superpower, uh, empire. Uh, you could easily imagine them cutting off that trade entirely. They don't want to fuel the ambitions of China. Of course, that would be horrendous for all sorts of American businesses, and it wouldn't work. But many people believe that's where we may be headed. I think it's extreme. But try telling the sellers that it's extreme. Second, the Federal Reserve is in a real tough spot here. Notice I put that in a much less pejorative way. I think the recent employment data is too strong for them to stop tightening. Remember, I favor the December hike because this seems to be the only metric that really matters to them is employment. We need a definitive uptick in unemployment for these people before the Fed will stop. And I doubt that can happen by December as the economy is still humming. But after the holidays, I think that retail will be pretty weak and there could be some more bankruptcies of a larger order than David's bridal, which just filed for Chapter 11 today, it's a shame that we need to wait until things get that bad before the Fed will change course. Uh, limited LB today, uh, tonight, limited brands. it's now called L brands. They they slashed their dividend. That's just another sign of what I'm talking about. I wish the Fed looked at these things, but they don't seem to care about anything the markets are saying or what oil's saying, the commodities. They just don't. They don't care about the monstrous declines in housing. The Fed wants concrete evidence of people being thrown out of work before they become less hawkish. I do not think that's the way to run the Fed. But I am definitively not in charge. Seventh, Only a few stocks are working, and those are mostly stocks that you buy when you believe we're headed into a recession. Given that nobody thinks you can slip into a recession so fast after such strong economic numbers, there's genuine confusion. Confusion makes people want to sell. If you just have a few blue chips that are are, are really insensitive to the economy, that doesn't send a strong signal to people. Eighth, the charts are hideous. It's incredibly difficult to find any significant floor of support here. I'm not a technician. But like legendary Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart said about pornography in 1964, I know an ugly chart when I see it. Ninth, while the fear is palpable, do you know that there's still plenty of people who come on air saying that things are good, that employment is strong, that we can handle any number of rate hikes? Who? These people, again, I'm trying not to be too pejor- pejorative. I think they are dreamers. When you look at all the very good retailers that have been shelled after they reported great companies like Macy's, Home Depot, Walmart, that's the market telling you to be concerned. It doesn't seem to concern the Fed at all, though. Tenth, we aren't even that oversold yet. Despite the awful action, we're not at the point where we should expect a bounce. The last time we got down to minus 5, minus 6 on the S&P oscillator I care about, then we bounced. This one's just not deep enough. It's not sad enough. It's not dreary enough, not angry enough. There's too much hope. There's not enough hatred in my Twitter feed. The good news, if we keep falling at this pace, even, by the way, the Twitter feed hatred is very funny because I've been, how many times have I come out and said this negative stuff? It's like, I'm at fault, all right? If we keep falling at this pace, it won't be long before we reach oversold levels where all hope is extinguished and we can not bounce. But here's the bottom line. I just gave you what I'm seeing. I don't see a way around it until these 10 problems get fixed, especially these right here. Okay, I've been highlighting these issues for what feels like ages. It's always some new people watching, though. Uh, These have only grown more acute with time, which is why we could be headed lower, even if we get a snapback rally from an oversold position. Let's go to Jonathan, Texas, please. Jonathan.
1: Yeah, this is Jonathan. Yeah, I keep it quick. Um. Uh, BCC, Boise Cascade, heavily institutional-owned,
0: um, finding new lows. Uh, should we start nibbling at this? No. See, this is what I'm talking about. The, the Fed were to look at that chart. If the Fed were to understand why Boise Cascade stocks down 30%, that would really, really help us. But they don't care. None of that stuff means anything to these people because they've never been in the trenches with me. They missed it in 2007 because they weren't in the trenches, and they're missing it now. Right, we're in a powerful bear market phase. When does the route end? Well, not until we get these 10 problems fixed. Uh, uh, you, we don't. If we get this, let's say if Apple breaks down again tomorrow, Facebook breaks down tomorrow, the software stocks break down tomorrow, the dip buyers get crushed, we hear more negative China news, the Fed says nothing, few stocks are working other than these the ones that are recession-proof, no real level of support, rose-colored glasses, more people coming on here and say I, I'm optimistic and not oversold. Well, guess what? We're going to continue to get more on Mad Money tonight. Will Yeti's IPO keep your profits cool like its coolers? I'm giving my take ahead of the company's move to go public. Then, does today's drop make you feel like you need a drink? Uh, you're not the only one, partner. I'll tell you if an investment in a company like Molson Coors can make sense here, I remember when that was very non-economic, right? It just went up no matter what, you used to drink more beer, like the lipstick thing that makes S.V. Order good. And it's a pivotal time of the year for the retail cohort. What could Boot Barn's latest decline be signaling? I'm gonna sit down with the CEO. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer, hashtag madtweets. Send Jim an email to MadMoney at CNBC.com, or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. The product is built to last, but is the investment built for long-term success? Yeti is built tough, but after an IPO, is the stock tough enough for your portfolio? I love this stuff. Hey, all right, as we sit through the rubble, trying to find stocks that went higher today despite an otherwise terrific session because that's a great way to measure relative strength, sometimes we find some really really compelling, intriguing opportunities. Opportunities like this one. Yeti Holdings, Y-E-T-I. It's a fresh face IPO that came public three and a half weeks ago, right near the teeth of the market's last brutal downturn. Yeti makes all sorts of high-performance outdoor gear, especially coolers, drinkware, tumblers, bottles, mugs, all stuff you can take with you when you go camping. The company's going like wheat, but it had the misfortune of coming public at the worst possible time, when the market's getting pummeled based on fears of inflation and a Fed-induced slowdown. Investors feel a lot less inclined to take a chance on some newly minted gross stock. Sure enough, Yeti's IPO was supposed to price between 19 and 21, but the actual deal came in at 18, and then the stock opened down at 16.75. Within a few days, it had fallen to 14 and change. If you saw that action, you'd probably assume Yeti was a dud, probably forgot about it. However, when the market stabilized, this stock started rebounding. And what's more impressive, it continued to rally today. It climbed another 3.23% to $17.57, even as the average has just collapsed. So we've got an interesting situation here. Yeti stock has become strangely resilient, yet it's still trading at a discount to its IPO pros. So we got to ask ourselves, could it be worth buying here? All right, let's figure this out together because, man, I love this stuff. For those of you who aren't familiar with this brand... Yeti makes some great products. The marketing has been very effective, and the company's built a loyal following of diverse customers that include everybody from college fraternities to professional fishermen. To me, I got my stuff at true value. I think it's fantastic. These aren't just any coolers. They're premium coolers priced at the high end of the market. If you're going camping or hunting or fishing, or frankly just having a nice tailgate party, and you want to be sure your fish stays fresh or your beer stays cold, this is the way to keep it. Pay up for Yeti. And I've got to tell you, the numbers, they're terrific. If this stock had come public a month or two earlier, I think it would have gotten a very different reaction. Consider Yeti's got a turbocharged growth story. The company's sales have from 90 million, right down to 90 million to 20, in 2013. 90 million, listen to this, in 2013 to just under $640 million last year. That is a 63% compound annual growth rate, faster than almost any tech company I have followed. Now, after growing in sales at a 75% clip in 2016, Yeti sales did reverse last year, actually shrinking by 22%. Ouch! What the heck happened? All right, as Yeti explains it, and I believe it, Back in 2015, the demand for their products far outstripped the supply. So the next year, their distributors aggressively stocked up on Yeti merchandise. That led to excess inventory in the wholesale channel, so Yeti's distributors ended up cutting back on their orders pretty dramatically in 2017. Basically, the retailers that sell this stuff keep uh, overcorrecting. Fortunately, in the six months of this year, Yeti returned to growth with sales rising by 34%. The earnings per share have had a similar trajectory. Oh, by the way, uh, did I mention that unlike so many IPOs, Yeti actually has been profitable for years? Don't you like that? Even when the business was getting slammed in 2017, they still made money. Company earned $1.63 per share in 2016, but that shrank to $0.28 last year. I mentioned that inventory glut was worked its way through the system. Once again, though, the numbers are on the mend. Yeti earned $0.28 a share just in the first six months of 2018, the same amount they made in all of 2017, and up dramatically from the $0.06 the company made in the first six months of last year. Now, within the prospectus, Yeti provided some preliminary numbers for the third quarter, which they'll formally report on Thursday of next week. And these numbers were, let's call them a mixed bag. The company's talking about a 7.2% sales growth, which is not so hot. Even as management also predicted the gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, would expand by 500 basis points. I mean, holy, yeah, it, that, that's that's huge. From 44.9 to 49.7, thanks to the margin expansion, Yeti's net income should grow by 50% year-over-year, which is very hot indeed. What else? Whenever you evaluate a new IPO, you need to examine the balance sheet. Yeti has some hair on it. Company has three hundred ninety-one million in long-term debt. Not great, although uh, for a one-point-four billion-dollar company, it's, it's not the end of the world. No, what bothers me is why Yeti has that debt. There was a private equity. This is a private equity-backed IPO. Yeti used to belong to a firm called Cortic, Cortec C O R T E C Group, and in twenty sixteen, they had this company borrow a bunch of money to pay a four hundred fifty million-dollar dividend. Three hundred twelve of which went to Cortec. I don't like this kind of thing. Uh, I know people say it's normal private equity uh, behavior, but it's not something we like to see. Worse, Cortex still owns a majority of Yeti's common stock, between 52 and 55%. Cortex got most of the proceeds from the IPO, and until they do some more selling, they retain a controlling interest in the company. regular viewers know, I'm always somewhat leery of these situations where the public shareholders are basically hostage to the whims of a powerful private equity backer. Plus, whenever Cortech decides to ring the register, uh, well, let's say their selling could be so heavy-handed that it will cause the stock to get slammed. So, where do I come out on this one? You know what? I love a good premium brand. In some ways, I think Yeti reminds me of Canada Goose, the maker of fancy coats and parkas. With a stock that skyrocketed as they're used to to use their high-end brand to appeal to a larger mass market audience. I love their quarter last week again. Retail was so bad, it didn't matter, but I think it will eventually. Now, I'm not saying Yeti's another Canada Goose, which was a big winner for us, but I recommend it shortly after it came public. Canada Goose have phenomenal execution. Yeti's a lot less consistent. But they've created a premium brand and defended its premium price point that matters. Meanwhile, Yeti's expanding their direct-to-consumer business, trying to cut out the middleman, sell this product straight to the people, as, by the way, Canada Goose did. It's something that worked wonders for all sorts of consumer-facing companies, Nike, VF Corp, Ralph Lauren, among others. And there's a lot to like in Yeti's financials. Now, okay, I don't like that the revenue growth slowed to 7% in the third quarter, but this is a seasonal business, so there will be some ebbs and flows. Plus, the margin expansion more than made up for it. Still, it's helpful that Yeti had a really bad year in 2017, because that helps reset expectations. They don't need to knock it all out of the park in order to impress Wall Street expectations. Expectations lower, lower, lower. The stock's trading at a high teens multiple based on next year's earnings estimates, which are pretty. i got to tell you, that's pretty darn cheap for a company with Yeti's level of earnings growth. But on the other hand, Yeti hasn't exactly been a portrait of consistency. Last year, the business got put through the put through the meat grinder. I worry about the private equity firm that still owns uh, half the company. That's eh, less than ideal. All that said, we're no longer in the post-IPO quiet period. Every single analyst that initiated coverage on Yeti today gave it a buy rating. Morgan Stanley thinks the stock goes to 20. Goldman's predicting 27. Jeffries' is biggest bull says 34. And that's why the stock surged 2.2% today. Bottom line, Yeti Holdings is far from perfect. But it's got a great outdoor brand, and its IPO was so poorly timed that I think the stock is a real bargain. Yeti? Call me a buyer. Rodney, New Jersey. Rodney. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I am doing well, Rodney. How about you? I'm doing great, thank you. Good. Well, go ahead. So my question is, I've owned Newell Brands, NWL, for many years and have
1: purchased it for my children over the years as well. I felt it was a highly diversified
0: company with many products, both that I knew well and, more importantly, that my children knew well. Their products must be in every house across the country. It had a great dividend, and I considered it to be a conservative and solid company. As you know, the stock
1: is down roughly 60% this past year or so, a drop I would have considered to be impossible and unheard of. I have not sold any of my stock, and I've actually been trying to catch the bottom for about the last $15. Maybe my take
0: on the stock is too emotional, that is why I'm calling you for your professional, unbiased opinion on this once great company. Should okay. I buy more, hold, or I think get out my, of I'd dog? love him to come on the show. But Michael Polk's last quarter was a good one. Michael Polk is doing some good work. This is not an L Brands, for instance, which even though they put a better quarter, had to slash their dividend and, and fire or got rid of the Victoria's Secret person or somehow that happened. I'm, I'm going to tell you that I think Newell, at this point, you should hang on. And you're absolutely right. Remember, they have Rubbermaid. That's a pretty good brand. But this Yeti brand, wow. I'm telling you, because the market's so bad, people are throwing these stocks out. I think it could be a monster. It's a terrific, terrific nameplate. I think it's a bargain much more made money in. The market erased the members' gains today. Wow! Feel like you need a stiff drink after the move? I'll tell you if Molson Coors could take the edge off. they my exclusive with the CEO of Bomb, one of the best retailers out there. The stock might be dropping like a rock. But are the boots still made for profit? And while Trump might make you feel confident that a trade deal could be done with the Chinese, Pence is taking the other side of the trade. I'll tell you how to approach the unknowns. Stay with Kramer. What a hideous day. We're, oh, man, it was just a terrible one. I like to focus on the stocks that managed to hang in there. Hang in there with strength. Expect the gravitational pull of the averages. My rubric? I search for companies that have recently reported good numbers, so we know they're doing well, meaning no negative earnings surprises ahead. And in this kind of environment, we especially like defensive companies that can thrive even during a slowdown. Which brings me to Molson Coors. Tap for all you home gamers. How clever is that symbol? Uh, That's the big beer company that just delivered some surprisingly strong numbers at the end of October. The thing about Molson Coors is that it has been in the doghouse for ages. These guys specialize in exactly the kind of mass-market beer that's fallen out of favor with consumers and keeps losing market share to craft beers or to Constellation brands Corona or Modelo which have the most growth in the industry. And that's why I've been very skeptical about the stock. But in recent weeks, Molson Coors has been making a comeback. In fact, the stock actually went higher today, gaining 2.57% while the rest of the market went into freefall. Part of the reason for the strength, the company has embraced the burgeoning marijuana business, which has the potential to change the whole darn narrative here. So could this be something that's worth circling the wagons around here? In other words, is the turnaround at Molson Coors for real, or is this still a show-me story? Before we dig into the nitty-gritty, let me give you some background. You know this company is Molson Coors Miller uh, Blue Moon. Carling, Keystone, and a bunch of smaller brands that aren't too numerous to name. For ages, Molson Coors had a joint venture with the old SAB Miller called Miller Coors, which combined both of the businesses in the United States. But when SAB Miller sold itself to Bud in 2016, Molson Coors bought Miller's chunk of that business for much less than we thought it was going would have to pay for. it. This forced sale was supposed to rejuvenate the company, but it did just the opposite. The problem? Molson Coors ended up making a huge additional bet on the mass market beer uh, business right when consumers were abandoning mass market beer in droves and switching to fancier craft brews. And for the next two years, from fall of 2016 to fall of 2018, the stock got crushed, losing roughly half of its value from peak to trough. Bolson Coors kept generating disappointing numbers and disappointing numbers, and its stock we have quarterly. Gone to the days of Smokey and the Bandit, when you could make a blockbuster movie, get this story, Burt Reynolds, that was premised on smuggling Coors east of the Mississippi, where it used to be illegal. Because 40 years ago, Coors was regarded as the best beer in America. Show that movie to a millennial now. And they'll have a hard time suspending their disbelief. That said, after the stock cratered this spring in the wake of a truly terrible quarter, we started seeing some signs of life, although at first Wall Street had trouble believing them. In June, Molson Coors held an analyst meeting where management reaffirmed their full-year guidance and committed to a higher dividend payout ratio. Uh, That's not something you do if you're worried about your business is falling apart, right? At the beginning of August, the company delivered an okay quarter, pretty much in line. But management actually gave some robust guidance, even if it was backloaded toward the end of the year. While the stock rallied a bit on the news, a week later those gains had evaporated. In short, sentiment was very, very negative here. For example, at the beginning of September, when the stock was at 66, pretty much where it is now, Jeffries initiated coverage on Wilson, Wilson Cores with an underperformed, or sell rating, arguing that the company was in a protracted sales decline through 2022, thanks to their, quote, troubled mainstream brand portfolio. You know, obviously, you know all these brands. The whole situation seemed darn grim, and as the market melted down in October, Molson Coors got clobbered right along with it. A little over three weeks ago, Anheuser-Busch InBev, the largest brew on Earth, reported a truly dismal quarter, and they cut its dividend in half. We covered that last week. Molson Coors was collateral damage, sinking to new lows for the year at 55. Remember, I just said it was around 66. But then something funny happened. On the morning of Halloween, Molson Coors delivered a massively better than expected quarter. They earned $1.84 per share. Wall Street was only looking for $1.59, while modestly better than expected sales. Thanks to recent margin improvements, Molson Coors turned 1.8% sales growth into a 17% increase in net income and a 34% increase in earnings per share. Now, the beer business hasn't suddenly turned around, and let's not say that it has. Molson Coors uh, Coors still saw a 1% decline, decline, in worldwide brand volume, with real weakness in North America, only partially offset by growth in the rest of the world. Sales to wholesalers increased by just 1.1%. Remember, Molson Coors still gets the lion's share of their sales from the United States. So when brand volume declines by 3.3% here, that really does hurt. They're getting eaten alive in the premium light beer segment. Think Coors Light and Miller Light. But the company's seeing tremendous strength outside of North America with these same darn brands! At the same time, management's been betting heavily on higher-end craft brews that are more appealing here in the U.S., as millennials have become a generation of beer snobs, although it may take a long time for these bets to pay off. The real key here, though, is that Molson Coors has cut costs aggressively, which allowed them to more than offset the commodity inflation that's bedeviled so many other uh, packaged goods businesses during this period. Even better, management raised their cost savings forecast by $100 million, they also reaffirmed their commitment to continuing to pay down debt. Uh, they got an enormous debt load that they took on when they acquired SAB Miller's stake in their joint venture for $12 billion. I mean, it looked cheap at the time, a couple years ago. So this quarter wasn't a game changer, but it was much, much better than many investors had feared, which is why the stock surged 10% on the news, and it really hasn't looked back since. Still, the bear thesis remains the same. Maybe Molson Coors has become a better operator, but the fact remains that their core U.S. beer business, it's in trouble. However, the company's been working overtime to build a new bull thesis here, and it all revolves around cannabis. Yet, rather than taking their cue from smoking in the bed going forward, Molson Course is all about cheese and (laughs) chum. At the beginning of August, they established a joint venture with the hypothecary corporation, people call it HEXO, H-E-X-O for short. That's a low-cost Canadian cannabis producer anticipating the end of marijuana prohibition last month. Molson Coors owns 57.5% of the joint venture, which is all about making marijuana-infused beverages, something the Canadian authorities plan to legalize next fall. Early last month, the transaction closed, and we learned that they're calling the new entity Trust. TRUSS, eh, I don't know if that's that good a name, but anyway. On the latest conference call, Molson Coors explained that the Canadian cannabis market could be worth $10 billion, with beverages potentially accounting for 20 or 30 percent of that, and the company's trying to beat everyone else to the punch. Uh, like Kramer fave Constellation brands, Molson Coors is a brewer that understands the scale of the opportunity here. But of course, this business won't start making money for nearly a year. But you gotta ask yourself is that enough? I like that management's finally executing. I like this fact that the stock is cheap, trading at just 13.3 times next year's earnings estimates. However, the big earnings beat here was all about cost cuts. And if Molson Coors keeps seeing serious volume declines in the U.S., its core market then I worry that there might not be much room for upside. And while I'm intrigued by the cannabis exposure, it's very small compared to what Constellation Brands has done with its investment in canopy growth. Remember Bruce Linton, the CEO? Uh, he came on, told a pretty good game, frankly. And it'll take a lot longer to pay off. Bottom line, Molson Coors is definitely getting its act together, but I want to see some signs of real improvement in the core business before I recommend this stock as an investment. But if you want to lay Molson Coors purely on speculation the thing has really turned around, well, as long as you're prepared to lose a little money, Be my guest. Let's go to Lily in my home state, New Jersey. Lily. Hi, Jim. How are you? I am good, Lily. How about you? Tough day in the markets. I know. I am hurting. That's why I'm calling. Okay. So I am 10 years from retirement,
1: and I just, as a single mom, put two boys through college. Oh, well done. I, Yeah. And uh, so my savings took pretty much a hit. Getting them through, but so I'm looking for risky but high growth potential stocks. I started getting into the marijuana stocks, in particular Aurora. So I, it's been, it was, I bought a while ago, and it's just tanking with all the other marijuana stocks.
0: Right. Well, Revenues I, I, are up. I think it's too speculative for you, frankly. Um, you worked hard. Congratulations, putting a couple kids through school. But that stock has a lot of flaws to it. Uh, there are going to be very few. As Bruce Linton said from Canopy, there's not going to be any sort of uh, consolidation. There's just going to be destruction, and I figure some of the smaller players are going to get hurt. All right, I know this market's got you feeling like you need a cold one, but before you go for tap, I want to see some signs of real improvement. I prefer Constellation, practically. Much more man might head With Black Friday just around the corner, I'm talking with the power company Boot Barn see if it could saddle up over the holidays. Then, could Pence's sharp china attacks or rebukes? move us one step closer to cold war. I'll tell you how to approach the latest action. And oil calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Listen, you know I've been sounding the alarm for months, arguing that the economy is more fragile than it seems. But that's because I want you to be able to remain calm on awful days like today. I don't want to be shockers, right? While there are plenty of reasons to be worried here, when Wall Street starts to panic, it has a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater, and that can create terrific opportunities. Take Boot Barn, symbol B-O-O-T for all you home gamers, the lifestyle chain that sells Western and work-related footwear, apparel, and accessories. Think of it as a play on what people actually wear in the heartland, something Wall Street money managers can have trouble getting their heads around. Now, Boot Barn stock has been a fabulous performer, and it's still up nearly 25% for the year. Not many can say that. But in the last couple of months, it has been hurt, losing about a third of its value since mid-September. Why? Well, some of it's because of the market-wide sell-off, but some of it is just downright inexplicable. When Boot Barn reported near the end of October, the stock nosedived from 28 to 25, and it kept sinking to 20 bucks and changes of today. You'd think the quarter was really terrible, right? wrong company delivered a big top and bottom line beat with spectacular 11.3% same store sales growth so what's going on here could the sellers be seeing something i don't or maybe they're simply getting a terrific buying opportunity as we head into the holidays let's check in with Jim Conroy. Conroy. Hey, Jim is was just terrific when he was on last. He's the president and CEO of Boot Barn. Get a better read on how the quarter's going and how the holiday season's shaping right. up. Mr. Conroy, welcome back to May Money. Thank you Good to see you, Jim. Yes, Have a seat. Jim. Thank you. All right, well, we've got some big boots between us. That's right. Um, I was uh, talking to my friend Matt Boss, who just put out a terrific note, and I was puzzling. I said, listen, uh, what's going on? Isn't this your fave? And he said, well, it's got the best growth characteristics. Am I missing anything? Did something happen in the last four weeks since you reported that I I can't figure out?
1: I don't think so. Look, we've had, as you know, three consecutive quarters of double-digit comps. Our stores have been growing nicely. Our e-commerce business is growing nicely. Margin is improving. Uh, We're optimistic about the business, and a bit perplexed about the stock price.
0: All right, that's it. What I want to hear, frankly, is I want my management perplexed when the stocks get hammered. Now, okay, so let me think, tell you some things I came up with. One is people are worried how much of your uh, boots are uh, your apparel is sourced in China.
1: So the piece that's directly sourced by us is probably only 7 or 8% of our entire business. Okay. So more of it is sourced overseas, but that is really up to the manufacturer or the brand to have to kind of import it and worry about tariffs, right? So that might be passed through or passed along to the consumer or split with the factory. But for us, our direct impact is about half of our private brand business, which is 15%, mm-hmm. about half of that is, comes from China. So that is really our direct responsibility. All
0: right. So when you hear the president or vice president Pence this weekend, we it's very tough. Do you think, OK, we've got to find another place, maybe Vietnam, maybe Cambodia?
1: Of course, we're looking at alternative sources. Right. And I think the brands are looking at alternative sources. But China has a compelling proposition, right? They Things are manufactured there for a reason. And I think their productivity is strong. And I think my personal view is they'll figure out a way to continue to be an importer to the U.S.
0: All right. Now, you have a big exposure in Texas. Oil's come down. Is uh, that area had been hurt.
1: So our, our, I think the exposure to oil for Boot Barn is a little bit overblown, right? If we went back for the last eight years, our same-store sales have comped on average 8%, and that includes a precipitous decline in oil. Now, in fairness, at that point in time, uh, our same-store sales did soften a bit, and they came to roughly flat. Um, and I think that was a combination of softness in the price of oil But we had also just made an acquisition and we had acquired Sheplers and that business had come down because we were changing from a high-low pricing model to an everyday pricing. Uh, But I think those are kind of combined together with exposure to oil.
0: I mean, I would think that anything north of 50 and you're okay.
1: Yes. Okay, good.
0: Now, I think that that viewers might want to understand that you have a good read on the consumer. You have great great CRM, customer relations uh, management analytics. And you also have e-commerce, which shows you where you could put stores. It's almost like you've got a roadmap to put up more stores, of which how many more can you put up?
1: So we have about 233 stores today, and we can double that store count. And we have a roadmap for the next 10 years to as to where we're going to put stores and continue to build out the country. And we do use e-commerce data, to your point. We also use a, a heavy dose of other data, whether that's um, employment, blue-collar employment, radio, uh, radio listenership, country radio listenership. Uh, rodeo, viewership, uh, pickup trucks. uh, All of that kind of goes into a multivariate equation, and we figure out where we can put our next store.
0: Are you one of those companies where uh, they see what I call up in the social media and they follow me, which I I never mind because I typically want this stuff. I mean, do you use Google, Facebook? Uh, Uh, Do you sit there and worry about Facebook?
1: uh, We don't so much. I mean, for us, we have much more traditional media, where most of our media spend is. So we are still country music, radio, television, direct mail, email. Of course, we do a bit on social, but it's the minority of our of our media mix by a lot.
0: Okay. Uh, the great chart, perspective on, on America. You've got that famous New Yorker contract uh, uh, cover, and then you have pa- pasture, forest, cropland. These are all areas you do well, all different kinds? That's right. I think what most people realize, and I had
1: grown up in New York, but I think what most people realize is most of the country, as you fly from one extreme to the other, is People farming, people working the land and riding horses and and driving pickup trucks. And uh, I think you kind of lose that perspective when you're in in Manhattan, for example.
0: Understood. And finally, uh, holiday gifts. What are we thinking about for the holiday season? People still spending?
1: We believe people are still spending. I'm optimistic for the holiday season. We're extremely well positioned with our assortment, our marketing. uh, Our stores are fully staffed. There's a lot of concern from people around seasonal hiring. Uh, but we've been able to get everybody fully staffed in, in 233 stores across the country when are ready for the next six weeks of business.
0: Well, that's terrific. And, uh, you just got great stuff, and I'm glad you uh, were able to put it in perspective because a lot of people get concerned about everything these days. That's Jim Conroy, president and CEO of Boot Barn. What a strong story. Man, money's back after the break. It is time. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy? the lightning round. Because I'm going to start with Jeff in Alabama. Jeff. Hey, how you doing, Ski Daddy? Uh, oh, Ski Daddy's good. good. Hey, uh, this is Jeff from Alabama. How about a little chicken chicken and Tyson Foods? Does it buy, hold, or sell? Uh, which one was it? Tyson? Tyson, no, no. Tyson had a bad quarter. I'm sorry. Sell, 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 sell got to get it together because that millennials love protein. Let's go to Zach in Pennsylvania. Zach.
1: What up, Jim? I'd like to hear your thoughts on Amtera Resources. Man, we are AR. were
0: recommending very, very few oil companies. One of the only ones I like is BP. Why? Because it yields about 6% and it just raised the dividend, so I'm not worried about whether it can pay it. Let's go to Corey in Tennessee. Corey.
1: Hey Jim, thanks for taking my
0: call. You're quite welcome. I'm a fan of you and your show. Thank you. Um, my question is about is on uh, Lululemon, L U L U. Oh boy, is this uh, a controversial one? Because I think they're doing well, but I got to tell you, high multiple anything, including apparel, is being sell, 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 sell. sell. I don't want to sell it. I don't want to sell it. But I'm trying to give you both sides of the story. Mitchell in California, Mitchell. Booyah, Jim! Thanks for taking my call. Of course. Hey, I'm calling you about ticker, ticker symbol T-L-N-D. Oh, my God. There's S-A. a billion of the talents out there that's software. I mean, they're all getting crushed. I saw one just go buy the tape. It was just, um, I mean, uh, Adalassian, symbol team. I, I know it's a twofer, but they, they had a 5,000 quarter. The stock's down 10%. I mean, what kind of market is this? It's awful. I want to go to Steven in the Illini. Steve. Hey, Jim. How are you, man? I am good. How about you? What's up, Bears? Hey, listen. Um, I'd like your
1: take on Schlumberger. Your guy called it Schlumberger. A travel
0: trust owns Slob and it owns uh, BP because these have good yields and good balance sheets, and I think that oil is not done. I was going back and forth with my uh, colleague Matt Horning today. He said, "Listen, you got to be really careful. This is the this is the twilight of fossil, and that's what you're really seeing. I think BP and Schlumberger are going to have better 2019s than 2018s. Definitely Schlumberger." But, boy, I seem to be the only person who feels that way right now. I'm taking one more. I'm going to Dave in Illinois. Dave, Dave, how you been, buddy? Dr.
1: Kramer, I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I am doing well. You know, I a tough weekend now with the ickles uh, there. The, the- <laughs> but uh, go ahead. What's up? What's up? What's up? Yeah, my stock for today, Marley Da Vinci, and I like Intuitive Surgical. I like wow. Marley's with my boy. He had a good week, and I'm with Intuitive Surgical, and I say bye bye bye. We don't have to give up on everything in this market. And that, yeah, 100 points. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion, of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. One big reason for today's meltdown, we're in a trade war with China, but we don't know what the heck this administration's policy actually is. On the one hand, President Trump makes you feel confident that a trade deal can be done with the Chinese, maybe even as soon as the G20 conference at the end of the month. On the other hand, Vice President Pence keeps making speeches that make you feel like there's no point in even negotiating with the PRC unless they replace their current government with a capitalist democracy or at least a capitalist something. It gets worse. President Trump intimates that there are lists and asks uh, going on behind the scenes, which potentially means something magical could happen. Vice President Pence makes it sound like we're trying to contain the Chinese the same way we contain the Soviet Union. The big difference? We didn't trade with the USSR. As Pence sees it, we're basically funding China's global ambitions with our trade. So we might as well shut it down because they're challenging American hegemony. And according to Pence, we're winning. How do we know? Because as the vice president explained at this Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation speech this weekend, China's largest stock exchange fell by 25 percent in the first nine months of the year, in large part because our administration has been standing strong against Beijing's trade practices, end quote. Yet the Trump administration has started a communist bear market. Now, what Pence leaves out is that, the, that he may have started a U.S. bear market, or at least a bear phase with his remarks at the Hudson Institute last month where he called for containment of China as it seems to expand its influence across the globe. That was exactly when the market started being crushed, that in October 3rd with uh, Jerome Powell and Judy Woodruff. All right, the latest APEC speech was more about how other countries don't need to take Chinese loans as part of their One Belt, One Road initiative, a multi-trillion-dollar gambit that's meant to be the world's largest foreign aid program, but one that does come with strings attached, sort of like the Chinese version of the International Monetary Fund. So, if Trump's vice president is on the attack right into the face of the Chinese president, basically call him a Shylock, how the heck can we be only a few deal points away from a trade agreement? and China's almost laughable. Now, Donald Trump is president, not Mike Pence. But it's hard not to get the impression that this administration cares more about trying to destabilize or even topple the Chinese communist regime than it does about negotiating a fair trade deal so we can do more business with them. Now, maybe Trump and Pence are playing good cop, bad cop. I've been thinking about that. You could easily make the case that it's all rhetoric, that Pence is Trump's attack dog, and these speeches are all about getting better terms. It's the art of the deal. But i got to tell you, all of this talk of containment sure sounds sincere to me. So you can hope that the G20 yields results. But I would say that Pence's reiteration of the hardline containment policy makes that event much more binary. And the odds increase dramatically this weekend— that there's no deal to be had, just a further extension of the cold war that began October 4th and seems to get hotter every single day. Stick with Kramer. Bad day for the bulls. Like I said, there's always a market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow.